When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone. Today on The Joseph Carlson Show, Bill Ackman is betting against high-yield companies. He says that he's bullish on America, but he's betting against high-yield companies. I own a lot of high-yield companies, so this is of interest to me. We're going to find out specifically what type of companies Bill Ackman has a bearish view on. Tesla and Microsoft both reported their highly anticipated earnings, so we're going to be looking at that. And the big question from the last episode, have I quit dividend investing? Have I given up on dividend investing? I had a few comments. Some people seem to think so. Uh, The short answer is no. I have not given up on dividend investing. I bought a lot of Apple, and I plan to explain that purchase more in this episode. So we have a lot to get to. I'll be going over all of that, as well as other news and, of course, emails. Okay, so let's jump right in. Let's start off with Bill Ackman. Yesterday, this is what he said regarding the U.S. Let let me be super clear. We are long-term bullish on America. We are long-term bullish on the markets. We continue to own you know, the same positions we owned in Hilton, Starbucks, Lowe's, restaurant brands. We invested, you know, subsequent to that year, $500 million in a real estate development company with major operations in Houston. Obviously, we're, we're bullish uh, on the country. Um, so Bill is still bullish on America over the long term. He still owns most of his long term holdings. He has investments in Chipotle and Lowe's and Hilton Hotels and other companies. Uh, but he outlines what he's bearish on. So this is what he has a short position on. Uh, we, we have today a, a, you know, a short position in a high-yield index. Uh, we are bearish on highly levered companies. What he's talking about is high-yield debt. Basically, any company that's taken out a lot of debt and has a junk bond rating. That's what he's short on. And he clarifies this further on in the interview. And we have a short position in the high-yield credit index, which is a, comp- a composite of you know, companies with, with junk uh, credits. So he says he's short the high yield credit index, which is a composite of junk bonds, but I still want to know exactly what companies that means. So let's find out what companies those are. So what I did to find the exact companies that Bill Ackman is shorting is I used the research tools on my brokerage. This is M1 Finance. It has this tab called research, and then you can search stocks or funds. What I did was I selected funds, then I went to bonds, and then under bonds, we want domestic bonds, and then we want corporate bonds. And then it has two options, investment grade or high yield. High yield are the junk bonds, so we're going to select that. And then it organizes them by the biggest bond funds. The biggest high yield corporate grade bond fund is HYG. So I want to look at the biggest bonds in HYG. Those are exactly the companies that Bill Ackman is shorting. Now, what we want to look for are the different holdings in this fund. You can use a bunch of different websites. The one that I'm on is ETF.com. But this gives you all the different holdings. And this essentially tells you exactly what Bill Ackman is shorting. There's a bunch of different companies I don't recognize in this list. So there's some like Altice France. I have no clue what that company is. But there's a lot that I do recognize. There's Sprint Corporation. Bill Ackman is essentially shorting Sprint. He's also shorting Ford Motor Company. Ford has a lot of junk bonds. 
So this is one that's heavily represented in this fund. It's one of the very top holdings. There's a lot of different Ford Motor Company bonds in here. So Bill Ackman is shorting Ford. He's shorting Sprint. There's Western Digital in here. There's Netflix in here. A lot of people don't realize that Netflix does have a lot of junk bonds. It's a leveraged company that uses a lot of junk bonds. We have T-Mobile. In fact, telecom companies are heavily represented here. There's some smaller pharmaceutical companies. There's some Tesla bonds in here. There's Wynn Las Vegas. There's Uber Technologies. There's Kraft Heinz. There's CenturyLink in here, more telecom companies. There's some grocers like Albertsons and Safeway. And then there's more Ford and some Quicken loans. And then after that, we get below about 0.1% of the holding allocation. So these are the biggest companies that are represented in this bond fund. So when I originally read this headline that Bill Ackman is betting against high-yield companies, I thought, well, that's not good. A lot of the companies I own are high-yield companies. We have JP Morgan, way above market average yield. We have AT&T. And Avi, these are companies that yield 5% or more. We have Realty Income Corp, Pepsi, uh, Merck, and Store, and so on. Most of the companies in my portfolio have above market yields. But this is not what Bill Ackman is talking about. He's talking about junk bonds, high-yield debt, companies that have lots of leverage, and they issue junk bonds. And that can be any companies that are high-yield dividend-paying companies, like Ford, or it can be companies that don't pay dividends at all, like Netflix. Netflix is one of the top represented companies in these junk bond indexes. So Bill Ackman is essentially shorting junk bonds. To see if those are the companies in your portfolio, you just have to look up that index, HYG, and search if your companies show up there. So I'm not really too worried about this news. But moving on, I want to clear up some things about my portfolio and some of the comments I received in the last episode. In the last episode, I talked about how I sold out of some bonds and bought tech stock with those proceeds. And it was a a change in my portfolio. Some people left comments. I'll go ahead and highlight a few of them. This is from the previous episode. Uh, Vivek says, I think that's how you pronounce your name, but not sure on that. He says, only me or does anyone else feel like the focus of portfolio has shifted from dividend investing to growth now? And it has a bunch of thumbs up. Uh, Anders says, Why the 360 move from only focusing on dividends and now only talking about capital gains, tech, and growth? Uh, He meant 180. Somebody kindly pointed that out to him. But I think they're both good questions. After receiving a few of these type of comments, I actually went back and watched that part of the past episode, and I saw how people got that impression. So what I wanted to do now was just clarify a few things. This portfolio, called Passive Income, is a dividend growth portfolio. The purpose of it, the goal of it, has always been to grow a stream of reliable, defensive, and ever-growing passive income. That's what the goal has been since the start. That's what I've been doing. That's what I've been tracking over time on different graphs and different charts. I'm actually building a, a website that tracks this over time, the goal to passive income. In the Discord, I have beta access to it to Discord members. But regardless, this has been the goal of this portfolio, to grow a stream of passive income. If I wanted to start a growth portfolio, I'd go up to here, I'd start a new account on M1, I'd find all the different growth tech stocks that I want to own, and I would start a secondary portfolio with that strategy. But as far as this one's concerned, that's not my goal. That's not what I intend on doing. So the goal has not changed with this. It is to grow a stream of passive income. What has changed is that I used to have 20% allocated to bonds. That was a significant portion of the portfolio allocated to bonds. Half of those were treasuries and half of those were corporate grade bonds. Well, over the past three months, I have consistently seen experts with bonds and these type of instruments say that this is not the place to have your money. Jeffrey Gunlock, considered the the king of bonds, he's the bond king, he says this corporate debt fund is the most overvalued asset in the bond market. 
That's LQD. That is literally the bond fund that I owned. And he said it was the most overvalued fund in the market. So I've since sold out of that fund. We have Ray Dalio that says holding government bonds right now is crazy. He literally uses the word crazy. So there's a lot of experts on this saying that bonds are not the place to have your money. They say either keep it in gold or keep it in equities. Now, I'm not really big on investing in gold. I like everything that I invest in to drip money back to me. So what I did was decide to invest in equities. With the way that I've seen the coronavirus happen, I've seen something interesting. The most defensive type of equities in this environment have seemed to be tech. These are companies that have extremely small amounts of debt if any debt, they have high amounts of income, they have reliable income stream, and they pay dividends. Every single holding that I have in this portfolio pays a dividend. Now, the starting yield is not that high. When I bought Apple, I got in at a price of $355 per share on average. The starting yield was somewhere around 1%. So it's not the highest yielding, but the bonds that I sold out of were all yielding around 1%. So what I essentially ended up doing was transferring a lot of money out of bond funds into Apple. Now, some people have looked at this and seen, well, you have so much allocated to tech. Isn't this just like the S&P 500? Isn't your portfolio uh, just resembling the general market? That's not the case at all. So let me go ahead and point a couple things out here. First of all, the S&P 500 has a starting dividend yield of 1.7%. The starting dividend yield of my portfolio is 3.24%. That's about double what the S&P 500 is. So it can't be just like the S&P 500 if it has double the dividend yield. Typically, it hovers around 3.7, but some companies have cut their dividends, so it has come down a little bit. Right now, it's at 3.3%. So that is a decent starting yield for a dividend growth portfolio. Now, I've had some people ask, why did I put the money in Apple? Why did I take the money out of bonds and put it into Apple specifically? I think that's a fair question. So I'll go over that. Apple, I consider a high-quality, albeit expensive, dividend growth company. It's pretty pricey right now. I think that it has room to grow, but I also think the company right now is pretty pricey. So it has a low yield, but the company has an incredibly safe dividend. It's one of the safest, if not probably the safest dividend payment in all of the stock market. The company has $200 billion in cash. They have an enormous moat. I don't think there's any chance that they would ever cut their dividend. Simply Safe has it as their max score of 99. If I go ahead and I compare Apple's dividend history, with the bond funds that I sold out of, you can see a stark contrast. Here's Apple's dividend history. You can see it's like a staircase. It just goes up year over year by 10%. Here's one of the bond funds that I sold out of. This is a short-term treasury bond fund. It's been declining pretty rapidly. I'm getting lower and lower dividend payments from that fund every single month. Here's a medium-term one, the same exact pattern. It's been declining every single month. And then here's a long-term bond fund. So comparing that to Apple's, you can see the difference. Apple has a reliable, steady, growing dividend payment. These bond funds have an unpredictable and continually trending downward dividend payment. So I viewed this as a way to ensure the dividend payment, to put my money into something that doesn't have all the risks that bond funds do, the inflation risk, the interest duration risk, all these different risks that bond funds have that equities don't. I thought it was a good transition. And the overall yield is about the same. So that was mostly what I did moving over to tech. It really didn't hurt the overall dividend yield of my portfolio that much. And I'll also point out that I've been buying a lot of other companies besides Apple. Here's some purchases I've done of Welltower. It's currently yielding 4.6%. Here's some purchases of Store. This is a REIT that currently yields 6%. Here's some buys I've done of LTC Properties, currently yielding 6% as well. 
Here's Realty Income Corp. This one yields about 4.8%. Here's some buys of AT&T. I bought a lot of AT&T. I have about 177 shares of it. It's yielding around 7% right now, and they have earnings coming up soon. Here's some purchases of Comcast, about 2.6% yield, and then a lot of buys of JP Morgan. It's currently yielding about 3.7%. Uh, I could go on. I could show you purchases of Merck or many other dividend companies, but you get the point. Overall, every one of these purchases is helping grow my stream of passive income. I try to not bring this up on every episode because I talk about passive income too much and it can get a little redundant, but here's my quarterly income from dividends. I'm going to be growing this over time and showing you guys the growth of this passive income. So overall, I just wanted to clarify that real quick. The goal of the portfolio has not changed. It still remains passive income. If I did want to change the goal or I did want to go into growth, I would just start a new portfolio. I think that would actually be a fun thing to do maybe down the road. But right now, I really want to get to the point where I'm earning over $400 a month. I think that'd be a pretty cool landmark. In the last 30 days, I've earned $358. So we're getting there, but we're not quite there yet. Okay, now moving on from that, I do have to highlight one clip here. This is pretty revealing of the advice some people give. I think it highlights something important. So let me go ahead and play this. Wow. Yes. JP, this is your quote. JP Morgan is not the stock to own in this market. No, I'm saying Charlie Scharf is the person to bet on, right? Okay, well, that seems simple enough. To clarify, Jim here is saying to not own JP Morgan. That's what he just said. And to instead bet on Wells Fargo because Charlie Scharf is trimming the fat on Wells Fargo. That's the company that you want to put your money in, in terms of banks, not JP Morgan, but Wells Fargo. I think the highlighting thing here is what Jim says before this. Here's what he says literally about 30 seconds before saying to not own JP Morgan. You own, you own J.P. Morgan, though, well, don't you? I'm wrong. You know, there's First Amendment. I got every right to be stupid. J.P. Morgan is not the stock to own in this market. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that says it all. He's saying it's not the stock to own, but I'm going to own it in my portfolio. Uh, I'm not going to sell it. I could sell it any time. The market's open five days a week. It's not the stock to own. What you want to own is Wells Fargo, but I'm going to continue owning J.P. Morgan. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, now jumping into some news, we have the highly anticipated quarterly earnings of Tesla. This is a really big one. Could Elon Musk make this company have four consecutive quarters of profitability? That could make them eligible to be in the S&P 500. It's a huge landmark, and somehow Elon Musk pulled it off. Somehow he made this happen. I like seeing Tesla be successful, so this is pretty exciting news, but it came with one really big caveat that I think is getting more attention now. Tesla makes an enormous amount of its profit from environmental credits. That is essentially the government giving Tesla money. And the reason the government does that, I think, is for good reason. They look at industries that they're wanting to foster innovation and growth in, like renewable energy, maybe solar companies, electric car companies, and the like. Any companies that the government thinks is a good direction to go, they give environmental credits, which is basically a way of saying, hey, companies, if you compete in these businesses, We're going to help you out. We're going to give you a competitive edge. So I think overall, that's a good thing from the government. Now, Tesla, obviously being 100% electric car company, is a huge beneficiary of this. They made 7% of their revenue, not their profit, their revenue from these environmental credits. That equates to about $428 million of regulatory credits. It says to put that in perspective... Regulatory credit sales were greater than the company's free cash flow and amounted to four times Tesla's $104 million of net profits for the quarter. That's basically another way of saying that Tesla, without the government's help, 
lost $300 million this quarter. That's what it would be if they weren't receiving these environmental credits. So um, that's not the case. Obviously, the government is helping them. They do these credits. So that's part of their business plan. And they understand that that's being phased out over time. The Tesla CFO, Zachary Kirkhorn, revealed that while Tesla expects to double its revenue from regulatory credits in 2020 over the previous year, bringing it to about $1 billion, he expects regulatory credit sales to decline eventually. So Tesla's going to make over a billion dollars from government regulatory credits. And it's pretty incredible how these things work. In a number of states, the government is requiring that companies sell a percentage of zero emission vehicles, ZEVs. It says in California and at least 13 other states, any auto manufacturer who wants to sell their cars into the state must sell a certain amount of electric, hybrid, or other zero emission vehicles. Automakers who are not selling these vehicles yet, they need to buy credits from the companies that are. So companies that don't have the required percentage of zero emission vehicles have to buy credits from companies that do. So Ford has been spending hundreds of millions of dollars buying credits from Tesla. That's the relationship right now. Ford is handing over money to Tesla just to buy these credits so that they're in compliance with the local government. So overall, I do have to say that Elon Musk has been playing this game marvelously. He's taking so many of these credits from the government, and then he's using them to sell to companies like Ford and direct competitors, essentially taking money right out of their pockets. His direct competitors, he's making them pay him hundreds of millions of dollars because he's well positioned for what these governments want to be the future and what seems like it's going to be the future. So it's a pretty incredible thing to see. I've never owned Tesla, but this has been one company that is, it's fun to follow. I don't know what's more fun to own with Tesla. I can't imagine it. Is it more fun to own the stock or is it more fun to own the car? I really think that's a debate. I don't know if people have more fun owning this company than they do the car. And then of course we have Microsoft. This is a a boring company, not like Tesla. This company is kind of boring, but it's one of those boring companies that makes tens of billions of dollars every single quarter, consistently increases the amount of money that it makes all the time. Every single quarter, year over year, this company makes more and more money. Uh, It has its hands in a lot of different things. They have Azure. They're taking market share from Amazon. They have Microsoft Teams which right now is in the process of killing Slack a slow and painful death. Slack actually filed an antitrust complaint over Microsoft Teams in Europe. Um, I think this is a smart move from Slack, but it does make them look not confident in their product. If we recall, we can go way back to 2016, which is eons ago now, but this was when Microsoft first introduced Teams that they were going to be a direct competitor to Slack. Slack came out with this kind of cheeky letter saying, Dear Microsoft, wow, big news. Congratulations today on the announcement. We're genuinely excited for some competition. And they go out outlining how how great this is to have the competition. Now, a few short years later, Slack is saying that Microsoft is unhealthily preoccupied with killing us. They've changed their tone a little bit from their welcome to the competition letter. And then the most recent news is that Slack is complaining to the Europe authorities saying Microsoft Teams is competing unfairly. Now, this is something very popular. Uh, We know that the EU authorities really hate Microsoft, they really hate Apple, and they really hate Google. With these big US tech companies, the Europe authorities have basically said, we're not afraid to find you. We'll hand out really big fines if you do anything that doesn't fit with our market. They set the rules, Microsoft has to play in the rules of their market. Now, Uh, The fines have been in the billions previously. Slack is saying that Microsoft Teams is anti-competitive, there's antitrust issues, and the European authorities say that it's currently under review. But they have fined Microsoft in the past for antitrust issues, so we'll see if they end up doing it again. 
Okay, now let's get to some emails. Joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com. That's the email address. It's also in the description. If you want to send me a message, you can send it through Instagram. You can send it through Twitter. Or you can email me at joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com. I read through all of them, and I try to highlight ones I think are interesting. Now, the first one's from Muhammad. This is a pretty long email. It's more like a letter than a question, but I thought it brought up a pretty interesting subject, so I'll make my way through this. We'll try to unpack it. He says, Hi, Joseph. Thank you for producing such quality content on a great channel. I've been an avid fan of your videos for the better part of a year now. I appreciate that, Muhammad. It's cool to see people supporting me for over a year. Anyway, he says, I had a rather fundamental question regarding the sensibility of stock and ownership of public companies. I definitely understand how the stock market works, but I'm a little lost as to exactly why so many people put their money in such a fluctuating environment. Part of the answer will agree with dividend investing approach, but I think it's important to ask anyway. If you're a real estate investor, be it for renting it out or living in it yourself, at least you enjoy ownership in addition to capital appreciation of the property itself over time. You get to have a monthly check or a roof over your head and a place to call home. If you invest in art, the value of the piece can go up or down, but at least while you own it, you have something that provides aesthetic beauty in your life. In these cases, you truly own something regardless of the profit you can make selling it later. When you invest in stocks, what exactly do you get aside from the potential capital appreciation? To me, it would make sense if you received your cut of the profit to do with as you please, but instead it is reinvested into the company on your behalf. And you're supposedly reaping the rewards of this through increased stock price and or dividends. This would again make sense if the stock price increased exactly as the earnings per share and decreased exactly by the dividend, but stock price isn't the output of an algorithm. It's determined by the whims of people and people can be fickle. Your share of the profit could be wiped out entirely if people all of a sudden decided they don't want to own this company, and that can happen in seconds. Secondly, why do I have to reinvest into the company? If I'm part owner, shouldn't I be able to do what I want with my cut? Maybe one quarter, I'd rather have the cash than put it back into the company. The executives and directors are the ones who stipulate this is the company's bylaws, and really all I have the power to do is to vote for them. This doesn't really sound like ownership. It reminds me of the concept of popular sovereignty in the U.S. government. The people are the bosses, and the elected leaders are their public servants. This sounds nice on paper, but I think in reality it's closer to the fact that the people are participants in a system constructed by the officials. I see the same concept in the company ownership. On paper, you're part owner, but you really just bought a ticket to participate in a game governed by the company's executives where the payout depends on what other people want for your ticket. Frankly, I don't see the point of ownership when the only thing you own is the right to sell it later. If you look at something like the credit score in personal finance, it's rather straightforward. Plug in some numbers about your history using debt and get a number. If the number goes up or down, you usually know which inputs cause that. Stock price isn't an algorithm function of company performance. If a company does well, I can't guarantee the stock price will go up because there's actually nothing concrete coupling the price with the performance. In theory, people's perceptions should reflect the company's performance, but that can't be taken for granted. I know it's high risk, high reward, but shouldn't the risk come from the company's performance rather than people's thoughts about the company? Thank you for answering my question. I'm sorry for the length. Keep up the good work. Okay, Muhammad. There's a lot to unpack here. This is a pretty full question, but I think you bring up some interesting subjects. So you talk about companies like they should be this algorithmic performance. It sounds like you have some like technology, maybe programming background because you're referring to stocks almost like they should just be some algorithm that you plug in some numbers and that's the price of the stock. That's not how it works because if you did that, 
you wouldn't be pricing companies accurately. For instance, if it's just based on earnings per share and that dictated the stock price, companies can use all sorts of financial engineering to increase their earnings per share when really the company's headed into a really bad direction. You can have a company that has no future ahead of it. It's in a bad sector. It's in something that's going out of style, but they're increasing their earnings per share by doing massive amounts of share buybacks and taking on lots of debt. That's a quick financial engineering way to increase your earnings per share metrics. That would lead the stock price to go up on a company that really doesn't deserve it. So there's a lot more things that need to be taken into context when pricing a company rather than things you could just plug into an algorithm. People have been trying for a very long time to plug companies into an algorithm and print out a good investment. That's been something that people try to do over and over again. They have websites that you plug in the metrics of a company and it tells you if it's undervalued or overvalued based on those metrics. That's basically a, a way of doing technical evaluation of a company. I don't think that that's a good way to value companies because you have companies that are very future driven like Tesla that might be overvalued, but you don't really know because it is geared towards the future and it's ahead of other competing companies. So um, when you try to plug things into an algorithm, it really doesn't paint the full story. I think that qualitative research is probably more important than quantitative, but both of them together are necessary. The next thing that you mention is you make the point that why can't you control your share of the company? You say the executives and directors are the ones that stipulate the direction the company goes and what they do with the finances. That's true. That's basically the role of the executives. The executives are picked by the company owners. You might not own enough share in the company to have a real significant impact on that, but if you bought an actual significant share of a company, you would be able to pick the executives. The executives work for the shareholders. They are stewards over the finances of the company and over the direction of it. So you have a CEO, he's picked by the owners to run the company, and what CEOs are hired for primarily is their judgment. That's what you pay for when you're buying an executive. The reason that some executives make tens of millions of dollars is because of their judgment. That's primarily what you're paying for. Some executives have far better judgment than others. And when they have stewardship over such a large amount of capital that has so much influence over tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of jobs, it's important to have someone that has extremely good judgment in that position. So you look at someone like uh, Jeff Bezos. He's a CEO. He has proven to have extraordinarily good judgment throughout his tenureship of Amazon. He has grown the company and he's made good decisions the entire time. That's why he is running the company. That's why he owns it. But you could also take other examples. Tim Cook is another person that when he was placed into that role after Steve Jobs, a lot of people doubted him and his ability to do what Steve Jobs is doing. But you look at the judgment that he's had, and he's about tripled the market cap of the company. He has had good judgment over his tenureship. That's why he makes millions of dollars doing that. Now, you are correct in highlighting, Muhammad, that we don't have much direct say in the capital allocation decisions of a company. We don't have much say in who's running it or the executive team. Uh, if you had an enormous amount of money, if you had a lot of capital, like you ran a hedge fund, then you probably could buy a big stake in a company and you could pick the executive team. You could fire the CEO if you wanted to. Bill Ackman has done similar things where he takes out huge stakes in companies and then he makes aggressive changes. That's called activist investing, when you actually get involved in the company's direction. So I don't have the capital to do that. All of my investing has to be passive, where I buy a passive stake in a company based off what they're currently doing. With some companies, I really like the executive team. 
I look at them and I think that they're doing a great job, that they've shown really good judgment. With other companies, I think that they have done a really poor job. AT&T, for example, I think has shown poor judgment over the past 10 years. They've done terrible acquisitions that have hurt the shareholders and hurt the company, and they've put the company in a difficult situation with a lot of debt. Now, they have a good company that has a high amount of cash flow. If they show good judgment and take it in a good direction, it'll return a lot to the shareholder. So a lot of it is relying on the executive team. So my advice would be look for companies that have an executive team that their current views reflect yours that they run the company in the way that you would run the company if you were set in that position. So that's really all we can do unless we're working with a huge amount of money. Now, the last part I'll highlight here is I think you make a really good point. You say the share of your profits can be entirely wiped out if people all of a sudden decide they don't want to own this company. And that can happen in seconds. That's true. When you go into the stock market and you buy companies, you have to realize that the price of the company is not set by its performance. It has Sometimes to do with its performance, but other times not. It's basically a voting machine. People can go in and they can vote for companies or they can vote against them. If they vote for companies, they're buying shares of it. If they vote against it, they're selling shares of it. Sometimes that's in alignment with the company's performance and sometimes it's not. There's lots of highly profitable companies that don't get purchased that much. They really aren't that popular. And likewise, there's lots of unprofitable companies. They have a lot of people purchasing them. So the company price is not always in alignment with the performance of the company. This is why I say continually that I focus on generating passive income. I look at these investments as a stream of income. The price of the companies go up and down. It's been happening with my portfolio since the beginning. I've had times where I'm in the green with capital gains by $13,000, then in the red by $16,000. Meanwhile, the actual income that I'm generating continues to grow. So that's what's important to me. People can buy in and out of these companies at any time, but what I'm trying to do is generate an additional stream of revenue by targeting dividend-paying companies. So I do see your point there, but that's how I choose to address it. Okay, on that note, I will end this episode there. If you do want access to that, that website I'm building, the dividend tracking website, I'm giving beta access to people that are members of the Patreon, the Discord. So you'll both get access to the Discord as well as the new project I'm working on. You can check that out if you're interested. Otherwise, I will see you guys next time.